You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 22. This episode, I'm speaking with Judy Lemberg. Judy's story is certainly not the norm. Judy is a former college biology teacher, now following her passion for wildlife filmmaking. When Judy retired from her teaching career, she immediately bought a Red One camera and headed to Yellowstone to film. She now spends the majority of her time in Yellowstone gathering footage for documentaries, stock footage libraries, and her YouTube channel. Judy's goal is to educate viewers on the wildlife that inhabits our planet and to understand its plight. Judy's YouTube channel, Epic Nature, has a diverse variety of films with subjects ranging from lions to slime molds and wild dogs to butterflies. All right, Judy, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. I was having breakfast, I think, with your lunch the other day, and um, I heard your story, and it just fascinated me um, because there's not many people who pick up a camera once they've retired and <laughs> go and buy the type of camera you did for a first camera and get out there and start filming and just have the passion you have taking on such a new, um, I think career is probably a wrong word, but taking on a new passion, if you like, um, and and just wholeheartedly embracing it I find it incredible so I want to I want to find out a bit more about that in your words so can you just tell me a bit about your life you know leading up to becoming a filmmaker and then how you got into filmmaking well I lived in Puerto Rico between ninth and tenth grade and the first time I stuck my face in the water I thought there's a whole new world there that I didn't know existed and it was really life-changing to me. I mean, I was young and stupid and not even in high school yet, but I knew biology was the way I had, not wanted, had to go. So I did. Um, I started off in marine biology, realized nobody was going to pay me to pet dolphins, so I went into wildlife science, which nobody's really going to pay you to do a whole lot of things in wildlife science, but I just said that's really what I want to do. It was my passion, and I got a degree in that. And then I started teaching, and then I went back and got a master's so I could teach in a community college. And I loved teaching. I loved my students. I hated the meetings and the grading. So after 32 years, I retired. But I've never been the kind of person that can sit in one place and look at TV or anything like that. And it, I ordered my first red one four months before I retired. Is that true? No, that's not true. I ordered it right after I retired and got one of the red ones, which I kind of think was a beta release of a camera. I mean, I know that's a software term. And then it's been uphill, downhill, whatever you want to think from there. Uh, spend most of my time in Yellowstone, but also in Africa and places between Yellowstone and Texas, which is where we have a house but we don't spend very much time there. We're mostly up in the Yellowstone-Teton area. And I'm never more alive and in the moment than when I'm filming a wolf or a bear or a whatever. 
Can I ask you how old you are? Is that a rude question? It is not tell a me rude, if it's, it's rude. It's, <laughs> not, it's not a rude question to me. I'm 60, I just turned 65 this summer, went on Medicare, and kind of scared me. Uh, but, I, you know, it's one of those things that it's hard to put this into words, but you keep going or you die. So, and I don't choose to do the latter yet. Well, I, I think it's wonderful because uh, what, what most took me about your story was not only the, you know, buying a camera when you retired, a lot of people do that, but you didn't just go out and buy a camera, you went and bought a red one, which is like, you know, a full on cinematography camera, which really, that really took me and showed how serious you were about getting out there and filming. So here you are, you're now, I think you told me you're living around nine months in Yellowstone in an RV, you've got a home in Texas, but you live out here, so you're here all the time and can film. What what do you what, what's your primary reason for filming i mean you're out there and you just said you you love it and it, it's living but are you filming to just for the experience or is it the the footage that you're bringing home and then utilizing tell me just a bit about the whole process of why you're out there i really think we're going down the tubes earthwise there's too many people on this earth i used to tell my students we need to shoot every third person i've changed now i think That's we need to shoot thing. every second person oh, okay you thought i was going to say something more positive <laughs> than that but i mean i really feel that way and i feel that there's a lot of people especially now in the united states that are totally ignoring that there are other organisms on this earth other than humans and they have just as much right to be here as we do. Uh, there's a lot of people that'll still argue with me about that, but that I feel very passionately about that. I so love doing it, but I also want people to know, to care. So, so you're, you're looking for impact from your footage, from viewers? Yes, I am. I am. And I have a YouTube channel, and I get some really not very nice comments. But yes, um, that's what I'm trying to do is improve people's knowledge of other organisms. Now, you've got some pretty unique footage. Um, you were showing me a clip that I believe you have on YouTube of um, a fox and its cubs playing around their den, and, um, and then a badger comes in. Can you tell, tell give the, because this is obviously just audio, give the listeners kind of an idea of, of what happened there. There were, we found a fox den, and when I say we, I mean like every photographer in Yellowstone just about on the same day found a fox den in May of 2013. I don't know if that's important. But the, the babies hadn't come out until, I want to say something like May 21st. At least nobody had seen them. And suddenly they were out, and everybody was seeing them, and the rangers put up a line that we couldn't cross, and I basically lived there as much as I could. And mostly what I got was babies playing and mama being irritated and nursing and the dad bringing in, the dad was a wonderful provider and there were only two babies. So they had plenty of, of food to eat because he was just a manic hunter. And so we didn't see the male very much, but we saw the female and the babies quite a bit. But on the eighth or ninth day, just out of nowhere, here comes a badger. And the babies had just gone down into the den, but the mom saw the badger coming and a fight, you know, started. 
and they fought, but the, but the badger got me into the den, and it was just like, after that, dead silence. Nobody, the humans, I mean, nobody said anything. We were all just like, oh, knew, thinking we knew what was going to happen. And 15 or 20 minutes later, out popped the babies. And one of the people, one of the guys that was there is, was, had studied foxes before. And he said that they have layers of places that, where they hang out in their den and that they usually keep the cache in a space up above where they like sleep and things like that. And he figured the badger had gone in and eaten the cache of ground squirrels that they had. And obviously the babies were down further and maybe didn't see the baby, I don't know. But they came out, but the badger was still there. And he came back out, fought with the mom for a while, went back into a like back door hole that they had for the den. And we thought, okay, this is not good because the badger's not leaving, but the babies were out. That night, she dug another den, maybe 50 yards away, very shallow. Babies went in there, spent the night with her. Next day, the male was out hunting and she never left. I mean, he'd been watching her for eight or nine days. She never left that den. But that day she did. And I still don't know, understand why she did that. The second she left, the babies went in to the new den, the little shallow one. And not very long after that, the badger came out of the old one, made its way to the new one. And again, it was just silence for hours after that. And then she came back. She just dug her brains out trying to get down into that hole. And then she finally came out with a piece of one of the babies, so we knew. But she did the most amazing thing. She put it down on the ground, and it was an area where she had already, like, knocked dirt, and it was all real loose where she put it down. And she walked around it 360 degrees and nosed dirt over the remains and she buried it it was just amazing um and that was basically the end of the mail never came in that we saw uh during that day hey, what was the um the kind of tension like by uh, you say there's a lot of people there and to, to witness some, some behavior like that um, you know it's nature happening in front of you but it, it's not always easy you know you can be highly emotionally charged what, what did it feel like very very sad I mean, that's really the only thing you could say is very, very sad. And what was surprising was we weren't really that far from that new den where those babies were dying. You could not hear anything. You knew they had to be dying, but we never heard the badger or the babies make any sound whatsoever. I believe when you were showing me, I think I saw that, that that's gained around one and a half million views or 1.6 million Something views on YouTube. So, and I think you've had some other viral videos on there as well. Um, it, is, it seemed to me when I, when I met you that you were commenting back and you were kind of you know, reaching out to people on, on uh, YouTube. It seems that you're very tech, tech savvy. You've, you, you know, you've got a red one, so you've you got to understand how that works. Um, and you know, you've really embraced YouTube um, and, and reaching out and commenting back to people uh, you know, on the forums there. Um, tell me a bit about that. You know, what is it that um, inspires you to kind of keep up with this technology? Well, you have to. 
I mean, you can't use a red one if you don't know how to use it. You can't use a rep Epic Dragon. You can't use my new Epic W that's coming tomorrow unless you know how to use the damn thing. Uh, yeah, you, I mean, and the Internet, you know, there's not going to be TV in a few more years. There's going to be Internet on television maybe, but, I mean, a TV receiver, but it's going that way. You have to. And just because you're old doesn't mean you can't <laughs> learn new things. That's fantastic. Now, you mentioned um, your new red red weapon, is it coming? Red W. Is red W. Uh, well, ap actually, it's Epic W. Epic W. So, so you had the red one, and you have been offered the op upgrade, because with red, they have the upgrades, and you're able to get a significant discount by trading in your old gear. So tell us, tell us what you've done. You mean in terms of trade-ins? Yeah, in terms of trade-in. Tell, well, tell actually, us where you've I've been done with all your equipment. Their tr I've, I've caved to all their trade-ins because I traded the, the red one in. We had a pipeline. This is a different part of the story. But we had a pipeline that was going to go through our, our uh, land. And a guy came and said, it's going to go through. And it's an eminent domain thing that all you can do is hope to get more money out of them. And my husband told me, Whatever you get, you get to keep and buy your red one with. So I tied the price to the price of oil at the time, which was when it was super, super high. Uh, and I made it come out almost to the penny to the price of the red one. So thank you, oil companies. And that's where I got my first one. Then the second one, I found money other places. But I've actually upgraded from the red one to what they call the Epic. And then I sent it in, and they put a new sensor in it, so I had an Epic Dragon. Now I'm going to send this new, the, the Epic Dragon in, and I'm going to get the Epic W, which is new sensor, new computer, new software. You know, all the cameras nowadays are basically a computer that you stick a lens on the front of it. And it's 8K, right? And it is 8K. So how do you, um, how does that affect your workflow? Because obviously 8K, it's going to be, you know, difficult to edit on a standard computer. Are you upgrading your entire workflow? Yeah, I'm going to have to. I just got a new Mac Pro. I'm advertising for everybody. Um, but I think I'm going to wait until the Apple comes out with the iMac Pro in December and get that. But I'm going to play with my, the uh, MacBook Pro in the meantime and see what I need. Now, do you keep all of that gear with you in the field so that you can edit immediately? Or, or are you kind of caching, you know, archiving your footage so that when you get back to your home in Dallas, you, you play with it there? No, it, it's all here. Uh, I have backups in Texas, backup drives in Texas. But everything else it, we keep with us because you just you got to see your footage with it. <laughs> That's right. You know, you can't wait nine months to see footage. <laughs> That'd drive you crazy. Now, tell me a bit about some of the footage that you have, um, that you've had uh, put in documentaries. I know some of your footage has gone out to other production companies and been used. Uh, tell us a bit about that footage and the companies you've worked with. Um, a number of different com companies. The, the one that's closest physically to me is Grizzly Creek Films in Bozeman. They've used my footage for a number of years, uh, actually. And they've really grown in the last few years. And they're working on a um, four-part series with uh, Smithsonian Channel right now. And they're going to use some there. And then at several other companies. One was a co-production with Smithsonian and a French company. And they talked about what 
the effects of wolves in Yellowstone have been on some other animals, especially elk, and why there are fewer elk, and it was kind of a complicated story. But they brought in grizzly bears eating more baby elk because cutthroat trout numbers in Yellowstone have declined because some idiot introduced lake trout into Yellowstone Lake. And I've done a lot of filming of the whole lake trout cutthroat issue and sold a lot of that footage and then ospreys and all the animals that are dependent on cutthroat trout and what those lake trout have done. So when you head out into the field with your gear, are, are you heading out with a shot list um, based on what a production company is asking of you or are you just purely going out and getting your own footage and then sell it, selling it on to production companies? The fast answer to that is yes. It, it, it really depends. I mean, sometimes I am going out with something very, very specific in mind. And other days, it's let's go see what we can find. And there's probably more let's go see what we can find days than other. So and are you finding it's more the behavioral stuff that you're able to capture that the production companies are after as opposed to just general beauty shots of wildlife? You know, it really varies. It, it depends on, and it's usually pretty specific, but obviously behavior is more fun to capture and it's more difficult to capture. But um, if it's cutthroat trout, you know, cutthroat trout really don't do a whole lot except swim around the river and come up and grab insects, which I love to fish with a camera. I used to fly fish a whole lot. Now I fly fish very little because I don't have time. So now I fish with a camera and I've gotten pretty good at fishing with a camera. I can follow those fish because I knew what they were doing beforehand because of the fishing part. Well, and that, that brings in the whole question that we've touched upon with many other people about um, but understanding animal behavior. And so I won't say too much. I'll let you say it. I mean, how important is it to understand animal behavior when Absolutely you're a filmmaker? Absolutely 100% essential. I mean, you have to. You have to know. And it's amazing to me watching some of the just visitors to Yellowstone, how much they don't know about animal behavior. But if you hang around Yellowstone any time at all, or any place, or any time at all, you'll know. Last year when, no, that's actually wrong, but several years ago when we went to Africa, some friends of ours came with us, and she was, did wildlife rehab for 20 years. She's never seen an elephant before in her life until she got to Africa. But she knew everything about, she could tell just by looking at these elephants, zebra, whatever, she knew what was going on. She knew that, when, this is the funniest thing, she knew that when there were two leopards, male and female, up in a huge yellow fever tree, draped over a limb at around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and that, but in the middle of the afternoon, the female wanted a mate, the male did not want a mate. She immediately knew that that's what was going on. I mean, it was pretty obvious. The female came over and he growled at her and, you know, slapped her a couple of times and things. But she kept trying. And my husband and her husband were in a separate car, and they were going with this story that the big one was a mama and the smaller one was, was the baby. And it was like, you idiots. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's not what was going on. And we both immediately just said, no. They want, she wanted a mate, he wanted to sleep. <laughs> so, you gotta that's know. Great. 
You got to know exactly. I mean, the lost opportunity if you don't understand wildlife behavior is is why um, is why people like you who do get paid for their footage, right? That's what it's all about. So, how how were you first approached for your footage? Um, you know, was it were you found by a production company, or did you make contact and say, "Hey, I've got some footage. Would you like to use it?" You know, I've gotten more. At first, when you first asked that, I didn't know the answer to that question. I couldn't think. But I have run into several people while I was filming in Yellowstone that they pay attention to the camera. You know, they no immediately see a red, especially red one. I mean, when I first started using that red one, people that knew a little bit about cameras, invariably every single person came up and said, cool. That was the word, <laughs> one word, cool. And a couple of them happened to be people that were doing productions and said, do you have footage of X, Y, or Z? So um, you, were, you were taken seriously because they could see you, you had serious equipment. Right, exactly. So what, what advice, um, I know we're, we're pushing time because I know you have somewhere to be very shortly. What advice would you give? Um, th there's a lot of people out there who have gear now, right? Gear has got, I mean, not necessarily reds, but they've, you know, gear is so good these days. You can film incredible stuff with very cheap gear. Um, what would you say to someone who is setting up to go out and film and they don't necessarily have a project in mind, but they would like to have their footage used in documentaries? Have, have you any advice on that? Never give up, never give up, never give up. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really what it amounts to. And learn your gear, of course. Um, but tenacity and the passion, you have to have that. And I was really lucky because I had another career that I loved. But I made some money and saved it during that time, too. So I was able to go out and do some things with money-wise. That didn't stop me. So I'm very, very lucky in that particular end of things. And I know that's not true for everybody. And when I first started, I had the equipment. I pretty much knew how to use it. But there were a lot of things I didn't know, especially in terms of processing. You know, what's the best software? Final Cut? Should I use Premiere? Should I? Whatever. And Getting online and trying to find things were ex extremely frustrating in terms of information. And I would really say one of the very best things somebody could do is come to the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival and volunteer. You know, this festival is expensive for the average person to come and stay. But you can fill out, you make up your resume, get on their website a couple months before the festival, which is always in the end of September, beginning of October of odd years, get online several months ahead of time, find their website, find the volunteer form, fill it out, and do it by their deadline, because then they know you're serious. And make sure you put down anything that is important in terms of what you can do, not only just with people, but technology. Can you run the machines that they use to show the films and things like that? But you can find a niche. You can find things. And it's really worthwhile, I think. I think that's great advice. We, we've um, we've said that before on the podcast. And what's really nice, 2017 now, Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival, we have two volunteers here who actually are here because of this podcast, because that information was given out before. Really? And, um, and two of them are here. And they've come up to me and said, thank you for the podcast. Um, it was it was that, that that made us sign up. And here they are. And now they're rubbing shoulders with 
incredible people like the Joubert's, um, you know, Bob Paul, amazing cinematographers. I mean, there, there's too many to mention. There's just a lot of cinematographers, producers, directors, filmmakers in general. Uh, it's the only place really other than wild screen you're going to find all of these people together. Mm -hmm. And so that's great advice. Yeah. Um, you know, thanks again for taking time out. I, sure. I, I find your story fascinating. I think it's really fun. I know that, um, you know, one of the things about being in Yellowstone uh, is that whenever you drive through, there's always hundreds of people when there's, you know, something happening, if there's a grizzly or a moose or something, there's always hundreds and hundreds of people um, lining up to, to take pictures. How do you deal with that um, on a day-to-day on -day basis? Because you're living here. And so that's normal for you. What, what do you do? Do you just come push in? Oh, yeah. I cuss a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, not to them, uh, to the people. But s s we have a group of friends that we all have boosters in our cars for cell phones. And it's much easier to text in terms of the amount of booster that you need to do that. So if we know... X person or Y person is in the park, we'll send, we send each other texts and let each other know, you know, there's a bear over here. And if you're 50 miles away, you're not going to do anything about it unless, because it's going to be too, take you too long to get there. But uh, you do share information and it is very important. And uh, you'll find that a lot of this, the um, regular tourists will go to the spot that's closest to the animal that they can possibly get. So you look and you see what that animal's doing and you think about where is it going to go next? And, right. that, and you get there. You yeah. don't get right on top of them. Again, understanding animal behavior. Understanding beforehand. animal behavior and watching which direction they're going and watching their what they're doing, whether they're getting ready to swim across a lake or whether they're just moving through and eating or whether they're crouched down low looking at an elk or like it's dinner. Uh, you've got to figure that stuff out. And you have to outthink those other people, and it's not hard. <laughs> well, I think it's fantastic that you have a group of people you share that information with because it, I think, uh, you know, it'd be too easy not to share the information because you want that shot for yourself. But I think it's wonderful that you do so that you can all collaborate together and get the best for everyone, which is fantastic. And at the end of the day, it's about showing that and inspiring other people. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Judy, again, thank you so much for taking the time out. Really appreciate it. You're most welcome. My pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series' future episodes. You can find out more information about wildlife filming at jakewillers.com. And if you're interested in starting a career in the wildlife filmmaking industry or being mentored to further your career, then please visit jakewillers.com forward slash mentorship. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.